Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Journey to Self-Reliance at USAID, a conversation with Ambassador Mark Green. Please welcome our host, James Roberts, Research Fellow for Economic Freedom and Growth at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you. Thanks so much. <clears throat> and welcome to Heritage, uh, both our in-person and our virtual attendees. We're delighted to have you today. Uh, we're going to have a, a very good discussion about foreign, foreign aid policy of the United States with uh, one of the most senior practitioners of that policy, uh, Ambassador Mark Green. And uh, we're excited about it. I don't want to delay it any further. So. I'd like to talk. I'd like to turn to Dr. Kevin Roberts, our new president of Heritage. Thanks so much, Jim. Uh, obviously, Roberts are taking over the Heritage Foundation. It, it makes Jim smile. As the new president, I am delighted to welcome one of my heroes, frankly, Ambassador Mark Green to Heritage for a discussion about U.S. foreign aid policy. Ambassador Green has had a distinguished career in Washington. He currently serves as the President, Director, and CEO of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Previously, among several high-level postings, he was Executive Director of the McCain Institute, U.S. Ambassador to Tanzania, and President of the International Republican Institute. As you may remember, he also held elective office, serving four terms in the House, representing Wisconsin's 8th District. But it is Ambassador's recent tenure as Administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development serving the Trump Administration that is the focus of our conversation this morning and most of the basis for my comment about his being a hero of mine. Through this event, we also hope to draw attention to a recently published Heritage Foundation special report that memorializes some of the most important conservative policy priorities advanced by Ambassador Green and his talented team of political appointees when they were at the helm of USAID. Under his leadership, they executed reforms and policies that would have previously been dismissed as unrealistic and audacious. Most noteworthy was the launch of an agency reorganization that established a new structure to end the need for foreign aid, captured in the guiding principle of the journey to self-reliance while remaining true to America's humanitarian impulse to help people in need. Traditional American values suffused agency programs with a culture of life and family and religious freedom as a first freedom. Under the Trump administration, Ambassador and his staff promoted pro-life policies and confronted the challenge posed by an aggressive communist China and other malign global actors. The achievements outlined in our special report will provide the next conservative administration with a solid base from which to launch even bolder reforms. And I will say that's an expectation of the Heritage Foundation. While offering a future Congress a basis upon which to reshape foreign aid authorizations and appropriations. I'm especially proud that this report was prepared by Heritage. However, I want to take a moment to reflect on this year. As many of you may recall, on January 20th, President Biden issued 17 executive orders and other policy announcements on his very first day in office. Those orders didn't just materialize out of thin air. 
They were the result of many long hours of work over months and often years by skilled policy professionals on the left. Many of them had been in government before. Many worked at think tanks and NGOs where they formulated and promoted the specific nuts and bolts policies that the new president immediately implemented on the very day he took power, as well as on the many days since. Under my leadership, one of the highest priorities for heritage is to be ready, just as our colleagues on the left were ready, with well-researched and comprehensive policies that can be implemented on day one of the next conservative administration and the next conservative Congress. It is just as essential that we identify some of the best people who can immediately be appointed to execute those policies successfully and as heroically as Mark Green. The conservative policy professionals who contributed to this special report commented that Heritage was the best place in town to undertake the important work of maintaining this institutional memory and knowledge. In fact, many of them said that Heritage is the only place that could accomplish this critical mission. And our mission will not be limited to foreign aid or even to just foreign policy, but to be ready on day one to assume command of all of the agencies of the federal government. U.S. foreign aid sends a message to the world about what Americans see as some of their highest policy priorities. That's why Ambassador Green's journey to self-reliance was such brilliant messaging. It challenged the commonplace reliance by the Washington Development Assistance Community on government-centric programs that increase dependency on the state. In fact, it wouldn't be a bad idea if conservatives adopted a similar but domestic-focused journey to self-reliance campaign outlining new policies that not only reduce the role and power of government, but also trust Americans to rely on themselves, their faith, and their families to rebuild a stronger economy and a stronger nation. To say nothing of the emphasis on revitalizing our belief in the dignity of every human person. Speaking of development assistance at Heritage, we publish our very own foreign aid policy prescriptions in the form of our Index of Economic Freedom. When the Heritage Index was created 26 years ago, one of its highest priorities was to serve as a roadmap for an alternative to traditional U.S. foreign aid programs that have largely failed to make a dent in reducing poverty or improving political stability in the developing world. To this day, the Index of Economic Freedom remains an essential body of work which our institution produces each year. It seems appropriate that the moderator of today's discussion is our own Jim Roberts, who was one of the editors of that index. Before joining Heritage, Jim had a long career as an economic officer in the Foreign Service at the State Department. In that capacity, Jim worked side by side with USAID in several countries around the globe. With that, Heritage's former administrator, Ambassador Mark Green, for a rich and informative discussion on the journey to self-reliance. Mr. Ambassador, welcome to the stage. <clears throat> You're very kind. I should stop right there. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Thank you. Well, <clears throat> well, thanks again, Ambassador Green, for joining us this morning. Appreciate well, you just listening to that uh, that marvelous introduction, that inspirational introduction. And I remember when I was uh, going into Congress back in 1998. Uh, that's what we were looking for, and Heritage provided it in those days. 
a prescription, a, a, an outline, giving us a head start and helping us to design approaches to the great challenges we were seeing. So I wholeheartedly uh, endorse this, uh, this framework. It's a great idea. Great That's, idea. That's great to hear. And as you know, this special report is uh, one of the new products that we're going to use for the next, next go-round. Um, Which should be soon. I hope so, yes. The sooner the better. <clears throat> so let me just ask a few questions. Um, your strategic theme at the USAID was ending the need for foreign aid, as um, Dr. Roberts said. And after four years now, do you still believe it's possible that tr countries can transition off of aid, or is there no stopping donor assistance from becoming an unending international welfare program? Absolutely. Uh, and I believe with all of my heart and human dignity, I believe with all of my heart in the strength of individuals. And, and you know, what I've seen all around the world is that people want the same thing for their kids that we want for ours, a better future, opportunities. You know, this notion of the journey to self-reliance is not something that we just came up with out of thin air. So back in the late 1980s, uh, my wife Sue and I lived in Kenya. We taught school in a little village. And what struck me in that entire year that we were there in that village, not one child ever asked me for money. Not once. They might ask for help with books. They might ask for extra lessons. They were not looking for a handout. They were looking for the tools that would enable them to lead their own future. And to me, that's what it's all about. And that is what the, the basis is. In the first day that I walked into the building at USAID, I got up and said, look, the, the purpose of foreign assistance must be ending its need to exist. And every single program, every tool, every investment, everything that we have, we should evaluate on the basis of how much closer it gets families, communities, and yes, countries to that goal. We know that uh, there are countries that are not far off. We know there are countries that are a long ways off. It's not one size fits all. But if we aren't constantly thinking about that notion, I think we're doing a, a disservice. And what's most interesting, I, when we had a gathering of, of donor nations, European donors, we had a retreat. And it was fascinating to me because some of the Europeans said, wow, you know, we don't really think anybody's self-reliant. And then at the end of the table, the South Koreans said, oh, actually, we think we are. <laughs> and uh, you know, the Japanese and the South Koreans talking about their journey and what they did. And then I looked at the Europeans and said, you know, I think I'm actually the only guy here who's ever lived in the developing world and actually ever worked in a village. You guys got it wrong. People are looking to lead themselves. And... Um, so the whole purpose of the journey to self-reliance is to try to provide those tools and investments that allow people to do that. And um, the other thing I'll say, when you go around the world and you talk to some of the talented, well-known leaders out there, leaders like uh, uh, Kagame in Rwanda, that's actually in his speeches. They are looking for independence, full independence. Um, you know, we certainly need to help with our humanitarian needs, and all of us should be very proud. America is far and away the largest humanitarian donor in the world, and, and no one else is even close. And that is a great part of who we are. 
but when you get beyond those material needs, we should still always be looking for a way to have a, a ladder out of dependency. It's more challenging these days. We have 84 million displaced people around the world. But even in those refugee camps, in those displaced persons camps, in those scattered settings, as we reach out and help people compassionately, uh, we should also think about the true compassion of you know, where are they going to be three years from now and five years from ten years from now. And to me, it's, uh, it's looking for those ways to do that. And it's a, you know, I think it's a great American tradition. So um, when, when we started it, and some of my talented team members are here, um, we didn't think it was revolutionary. It's just it's the way that we're supposed to do things. Well, and I should note that uh, some of your former colleagues at AID uh, helped write this report and wrote uh, the bulk of it, actually. So uh, I edited it along with Max Primorak, uh, whom, whom you know from AID. Um, <clears throat> so, but under now, as you know, under the Biden administration, USAID has refocused heavily on climate change, and yet the, war, the West's war on fossil fuel and its associated spike in energy costs are really undercutting economic growth in the developing world and really exa exacerbating poverty denying access to reliable and cheap electricity to hundreds of millions of people. Experts claim that these same countries now will need hundreds of billions of dollars in financial transfers to compensate them for the costs of going green. Does this equation work in your opinion? Well, if, if transferring resources, cash, to the developing world on the basis of climate um, is in, if they mean by that sending money to uh, governments that have felt the fallout from changing climate, governments which, thanks to the great work of heritage and, and the indexes, um, either don't have the capacity or, quite frankly, have issues of corruption and spending money. The answer is no. If what the, the um, uh, analysts mean is that we should stimulate investment in green technologies in countries that are rapidly growing and have needs. If we should bring American private enterprise to bear, yes, I'm in. Um, and a private enterprise wants to do that and is ready to do that and is ready to help. There's so many exciting technologies. But this notion that we should sort of do what government transfers of cash is, I think, um, the audience knows when it comes to development assistance, with very few exceptions, we actually don't provide money to governments. We gave that up a long time ago. Instead, what we do is we partner with NGOs. We partner uh, with organizations. Uh, some are for-profit, most are non-profit, some are faith-based, some are secular. Whatever it takes to reach out and meet people where they are, and this notion that we would depart from that and instead give money directly to government because of um, the climate, you know, we, we're going to find ourselves in the same place that we are, if not worse, 10 years from now. So I instead would love to foster private investment. I would love to harness some of the exciting technologies that we see here and bring them into countries that are rapidly growing, where there are going to be great energy needs, and also, by the way, I'm quite convinced that's what young Africans, that's what young Brazilians, that's what they want to. Yeah. Speaking of faith-based, under your leadership, uh, 
USAID became a leader in addressing religious persecution overseas. Why is this such an important issue for America? Well, it is for so many reasons. Um, first, let me give you a practical answer. Uh, back in my day when I was a member of Congress, 98 through 2006, after 9-11, when uh, under President Bush's leadership we crafted PEPFAR, the AIDS initiative, President's Malaria Initiative, and went on to do other groundbreaking programs, none of those would have been successful had we not partnered with faith-based organizations that can reach communities and corners that have been left behind, that also in many cases have as their own mission uh, ministering to the whole person. And uh, they were there before U.S. money was there. They're going to be there after U.S. money leaves. But to me, that was the most effective way of making a difference in, in lives. And, you know, PEPFAR, uh, Bush's AIDS initiative, is historically successful. So that, that's one reason. Secondly, uh, and we did a lot of this work, um, perhaps most famously, places like northern Iraq. Um, anytime someone would uh, criticize that or, or you know, uh, give a little pushback, I found that remarkable. So here we have ISIS, whose sworn purpose it was to extinguish faith communities in places like northern Iraq, wipe out the Chaldean Catholics, wipe out the Yazidis. Obviously, if we're going to defeat ISIS, we must repair some of that which they sought to destroy. And in the way that we did it, we did not provide, again, this is not about you know taking suitcases of cash to churches and shrines and synagogues and mosques. Instead, it was helping to repair the fabric of communities so these poor people didn't have to flee, that they might be able to, um, you know, build their lives and pursue their their um, future there. Uh, so that's the other reason. But the, the the final reason is, you know, look, uh, true religious freedom. It's our first freedom. It goes back to who we are. I mean, this is what the United States is. It's true religious freedom. It's not any one faith. It is the freedom to pursue your faith or not. It's freedom of conscience. And I believe that that value is so fundamental to who we are. You know, I, I was reading something the other day that, that um, Condi Rice had once written. She said, you know, every now and then we'll hear Europeans complain about the fact that we insert values into how we do foreign assistance. She said, you know what, we're actually not Europeans. We're Americans. This is who we are. This is what we do, and this is a, a core part of who we are. So I'm very, very proud of that work. Um, and I think if that work is, is uh, diminished, it will be, a, uh, uh, it'll be dark in terms of the, those that we seek to help. Also, my own opinion, I don't think it's following our own great beliefs, our philosophical underpinnings. And, uh, of course, protecting religious freedom reminds us that you also took bold steps to protect the lives of unborn children, particularly through new policies you implemented in the Bureau of Global Health. For example, the revived and renamed Mexico City policy. Uh, could you please elaborate on that? Sure. Well, first off, it was the law. And uh, we decided we would follow the law. But uh, secondly, it, it, again, it, it gets 
at this notion that you sometimes hear. Sometimes um, analysts or, or, or uh, you know, thinkers and talkers uh, treat foreign assistance as though it's an entitlement, right? That, that we are obligated to do this, and we're obligated to do it precisely the way other people want us to do it. I actually don't think that's true. First, you know, this is voluntary. We're not required to provide assistance. I believe we should, but it is voluntary. And secondly, um, you know, should we reflect the values of Americans and American voters and American communities? I'm not sure what's wrong with that, right? That is who we are. And um, in the case of, you know, what has been called Mexico City, uh, obviously, uh, uh, renamed in the in the Trump administration, but um, you know that's longstanding, and again, it is voluntary. No one's required to take the assistance that we provide. And what sometimes gets lost in the discussion, we are far and away the largest donor of maternal and child health. I mean, far and away. This is a country that has long made investments in lifting the lives uh, of families around the world, particularly uh, mothers and children. And uh, I'm proud of that. I'm very, very proud of that work. And, you know, quite frankly, I think other nations need to do more. Um, you know, the, it's, the U.S. is a terribly generous country. Uh, the needs are fantastic right now, and they're growing rapidly with all that's going on. And so I would like other countries to do more. But, um, you know, the U.S. does an extraordinary amount. And while at the helm of AID, you also pressed to, for increased funding partnerships with local organizations, including faith-based organizations, and to reduce USAID's reliance on large international implementers and beltway contractors. Why was this an important objective? And can you talk about the new partnership initiative in particular? So. I'm sometimes asked if I was surprised by anything that I found um, when I joined USAID or what were my biggest surprises. And there were two I point to. Number one, and, and you know, we can perhaps talk about it a little later on, I don't know that I fully um, appreciated the scale and scope of the human displacement problem. Again, it's 84 million. The, U, the, the world has set a record every year since 2013 in terms of the number of displaced. It's going in the wrong direction and going fast. That I, I did not um, uh, fully appreciate. The other thing that I didn't appreciate, when I was looking at um, our uh, partners, so our, our contracting partners and our, our uh, grant partners, what had surprised me and, and quite frankly scared me is that the number was going like this. The number was contracting very fast. And if you believe that uh, competition brings about the best ideas, that's a bad trend. And so that was something I felt we needed to tackle right away. We, we need to make it easier to work with USAID, the US government, and encourage, including for-profit businesses, to get into this, compete, bring about their best ideas. So that was another reason for it. But also, um, it's making sure that the programs, the investments that we make, are tailored to the needs of the communities where we work. And that we are working 
closely with partners who understand the needs of the community and will be there. And so the new partnerships initiative, that was really the heart of it. And it, it's interesting that it ended up that the, the focal point became northern Iraq. And it wasn't because we sort of spun the globe and said, okay, well, we'll go to northern Iraq. It's because so much damage and devastation had been done through the evil reign of ISIS. I mean, it, it is hard to um, adequately express uh, what was there. Uh, uh, Vice President Pence uh, had asked uh, me to lead a delegation to go take a look firsthand at some of this. And when I would go to churches and you would be shown places where priests had been beheaded on the shrine by ISIS uh, warriors, you just realized this was a, uh, an area that had been absolutely destroyed, devastated, decimated. And so as you look to rebuild the fabric, you can do it one of two ways. You can have it driven by people up in Turtle Bay or inside the Beltway, and they'll give the right answers because they know best, and we'll do it from a long distance away, and we'll do big blocks of money. Or you can go to community leaders and small NGOs that are working there, many of them faith-based, particularly in that area, and say, what is it that you need? I mean, what is it that, that will actually change the trajectory so that young Yazidis believe they might actually be able to stay? And that's why we did this. In order to do that, you had to take the, uh, the old bureaucratic way. To, to partner with USAID, you had to sort of fill out like a 50-page full-color document and take it in. And none of these poor people, I mean, it's just silly, right? So um, we actually utilized some of the tools that we had that we really hadn't been using, which allowed for true collaboration where Hal Ferguson and Max Primerack could go to a whiteboard and actually you know, design something with input from local leaders and then try to fund that. And um, you know, I still think it's the right answer. So I know there's a lot of talk. My successor is also talking about um, localization. But to me, the most successful, effective localization is when you listen first, when you reach out to those local communities, and the, the ones, again, who, who were there and will be there, and work with them on the priorities that uh, they set. And uh, I'm proud of that work and, and hope that that is um, uh, changing. Now, it, it is more work for the agency, and I'm quick to say that, and we said it throughout the agency. Sometimes what happens in government is the path of least resistance is to take a very big contract or a very big grant and give it over to someone and say, here, you do this for me, and then you're done, and you go home and you know, have dinner or whatever. Um, effective development is hard. It's really hard. It's day-to-day -day listening, crafting, um, putting things together, pushing on the bureaucracies, and, um, you know, the, the, the team, and again, many of them are here, Saman Norquist, is really hard work. But that's why we're here, right? That's what we all believe in. We believe in American compassion, mobilize. We believe in harnessing some of these great principles 
And so I'm, you know, I'm very proud of that work and proud of the new partnership initiatives. I'm proud of, uh, of working. Again, in many cases, they were faith leaders because the faith leaders were the leaders of the community. And um, listening and, and trying to respond to their needs was, you know, was one of the joys of the work we did. Yeah. Well, and you know, delivering uh, the best um, foreign aid on the ground to these people and communities in developing and least developed countries, uh, the United States and the West now has a big competitor, and that is Communist China. And they have made strategic inroads in developing countries around the world through their debt trap diplomacy Belt and Road Initiative. They have acquired ports, airports around the world, most recently um, the only airport in Uganda. How did you respond to this threat when you were at AID, and how should the United States be responding to it going forward? So I, I think in a lot of ways we were ahead of our time at USAID. I think, uh, first off, I, I think a true accomplishment of President Trump is he awakened Americans to the challenge of China. Uh, it's something that some understood before President Trump, but as whether it's the you know Twitter or the microphone, whatever it is, he awakened Americans and uh, none too soon, and and that was a very important contribution. Um, sometimes we don't understand who our rival is, and uh, someone who works with me said this, and it's been quoted elsewhere. He came in and he said, you know, you guys got to understand that Chinese aren't 10 feet tall. He said they're, they're in some ways very powerful. In many ways, they're really weak. They're afraid of their own people. They are afraid of their own people, their own people getting information, and their own people understanding what's getting done. And that's a, something that we should never lose sight of. In terms of the competition around the world, we crafted something uh, that we call the clear choice. And uh, instead of simply countering China, in other words, looking to see where China moves money and then we follow when we move money, as this friend of mine, a China expert, said, don't, work, don't do that. You, democracies can never move money as fast as authoritarians. And he said, that's not your strength. It's not just countering, it's contrasting. Make sure that people understand in countries the rules of the road, the bargain that they're getting. So, you know, we lay out a vision, and wherever we went, we would talk with our partners around the world and foreign leaders about this. Look, um, we offer the journey to self-reliance. It's not easy. It, it means undertaking reforms. But if you want to do it, we'll walk with you along the way. And at the end of this journey, you'll be self-sufficient, self-reliant, with vibrant economy. You'll be a trading partner. You'll be an ally. You will never lose the U.S. as a friend and an ally. In the Chinese model, if an investment that China makes leads to more self-reliance, someone back in Beijing is going to be really upset and fire whoever made that investment because they have the opposite goal in mind. In the Chinese model, they want to create dependency, in our model, we want to create self-reliance. That's a good contrast to make to young Africans. No young African that I know wants to see his or her birthright, uh, their beautiful natural resources, sold off to Beijing by leaders who don't have their best interests at heart. 
and I think we should be full-throated about it. I think we should talk about it everywhere we go. Um, you know, I do a lot of work at the Wilson Center. We have something called the Polar Institute, which is the preeminent institute doing the studies on, on both the North Pole and the South Pole. Most recently, and most um, best known, is the Arctic Circle. And China is moving on the Arctic Circle faster than anyone's business. Uh, China has now declared itself a near-Arctic power, because, of course, they aren't in the Arctic Circle. Actually, um, Senator Angus King said yesterday at something I was at, he said that's like saying that Maine's a near-Caribbean state. Um, but they're uh, sending fishing fleets out and settling villages. They are buying up assets where they can. Um, Russia is now building nuclear-powered icebreakers for them. So we do need to understand on a hard power basis the nature of the challenge. And so I'm, I'm hawkish myself. So um, all the things that I'm talking about are not a substitute for continuing to build up the strength of our hard power tools. I mean, that, that is crucial as well, and of course, cyber as well now. Well, I know we're going to turn to questions from the audience in a minute, but I have one last question, and it's sort of an inside baseball question. Okay. And that is, uh, many conservatives believe and have believed that the foreign aid industry, like so much else in America, has gone woke, and that there is no longer a place for conservatives in the U.S. government-financed um, aid industry. What impact will politi political poli um, polarization within the industry have on future bipartisan support for foreign aid? Well, uh, first off, um, I strongly encourage conservatives to stay engaged. Uh, this is an area where conservative leaders have made incredible, historic reforms and lifted lives. As someone who began his career as a teacher in uh, western Kenya and then was ambassador in another country in East Africa, I can tell you that if not for George W. Bush's PEPFAR initiative, an entire generation of Africans would have been lost. That doesn't happen without George W. Bush, and it was successful because Bush used smart, cross-bureaucracy, business-like principles, demanding results where he went. If not for that Republican president, we don't have it. The Millennium Challenge Act, which I helped co-author, um, I love the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Not only was it important in the places that it worked, the whole world looked and said, God, why is that working so well? And they began to look at the indicators, including those that uh, you here provide. It was revolutionary. Do we think that would have happened in a different administration? No. What we tried to do when I got to USAID the natural tendency, people came to me and said, you know, what new programs are you going to launch? I said, well, I, you know, I don't need to launch new bureaucracies and programs. I need to make them work. And so what we did is we crafted metrics and ways of analyzing all that we do and made it more business-like, outcome-oriented, common sense, again, around this notion of helping countries get to the point where they don't need traditional assistance where we can transition to, you know, we want them all to go from being aid recipients to partners to fellow donors. That's, that's the model. 
And that's how we tried to approach things. Where we did do new initiatives, or some of those that you mentioned, um, our, our belief that religious liberty needs to be a part, it is part of who we are, so therefore it should be part of our projection to um, the, uh, the rest of the world. But what we tried to do is bring more business-like principles to it. My experience is, when it comes to the development community, and we were really lucky. I had a great team to work with, great career team to work with at USAID. When they saw that we were trying to make a positive difference, it might be a different one that they perhaps personally, privately might do, but when they realized that there was um, you know, logic to what we were aiming for, they're fantastic. And they really did great work. And I'm very proud of, of so many of the team at USAID and, and those with whom we partnered, other parts of the administration as well. Um, you know, what I think we need to do is to listen to leaders in the developing world. Um, you know, quite frankly, sometimes they look at the, the woke things we see here and they shake their heads and say, what's this all about? Tell me, tell me how this provide school books for my kids. Tell me how this actually helps me get those disease-resistant seeds that I can plant. Tell me, you know, what's this all about? And so, you know, my view is stick to the basics, stick to the fundamentals, stick to the principles that we know work because they work here. Um, but uh, Republicans, conservatives, uh, don't walk away. Um, because Republicans and conservatives, Heritage Foundation should be awfully proud of the innovations uh, that have been brought. Um, the index is really important. It is something against which we measure our decisions. It's part of the um, conversation in our roadmaps that we use to measure country by country. We insert it into the conversations because we know, you know, this is how you make life better. This is how you preserve human dignity and human liberty and you create opportunities. And if conservatives walk away, it doesn't get better. If, final note, I'll say, so a couple of conservative unsung heroes, um, and, I, and I share, I'm very skeptical of large institutions and large bureaucracies multinational bureaucracies in particular, but um, we are terribly lucky to have had people like former Governor David Beasley at the World Food Program, Henrietta Four at UNICEF, uh, and these are two conservatives who helped enormously, and in, uh, in we partner with them in so many places. So it is a reminder um, you know, as, as painful as it sometimes is, boycotting doesn't make it go away. Do what you can to change things. And, and again, those are, are two individuals who I think made great difference. And uh, Henrietta's retiring and David, hopefully not. As you probably remember, um, the concept of the Millennium Challenge Corporation was developed in part, and maybe in large part, here at Heritage. So there's a great, I, I, we did an event here some years ago, again, I was one of the authors, and I remember um, uh, Gary Edson, who was, you know, did a lot of the writing of it, 
And he walked in and he said, you know, people told us then that you can't hold people in the developing world accountable. He said it was BS then and it's BS now. And these principles that, that you all know so well, they happen to be right, you know. And so I think our job is to find ways to bring them to bear on the world's great challenges. And when we do, the world will be better off. I think the people in those countries want to be rid of corruption just as much as, as we do. Oh, yeah. And, uh, Absolutely. A major obstacle, of course, which the MCC focused on. So. Yeah, no, it, 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 um, it, you know, one of those things that we should all point to with pride. Well, I'm sure our audience has questions, um, and we have, um, we do have a mic, um, and uh, also we, we can accept questions from online viewers. Uh, and so we've covered a lot, and I'm sure there are many more questions. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to turn to my co-editor of the special report on the, your time at AID, uh, Max Primarek, for the first question. Ambassador Green, hello. Uh, Jim, thanks for doing this, and thanks to Heritage Foundation for hosting this. I wanted to drill down a little bit further on the religious persecution issue, because under your leadership, uh, USAID was very uh, proactive on counter-genocide. You had mentioned uh, northern Iraq with respect to the Yazidis and, and the Christians, but also you were very active in, uh, in Burma with the uh, Rohingya, the Muslim Rohingyas, but also with uh, the, the Uyghur, with your fireside chats that you, that you did internally, reaching an, uh, an, an internal audience of thousands of uh, USAID staff. Uh, could you share with us the the stories that you sure. you uh, you had when you traveled to to the camps over there, both in in northern Iraq and in uh, uh, in uh, Bangladesh? Thank you. You know, it's been said that the greatest way to demonstrate your belief in religious liberty is to support it for those of a different faith and a different background. And um, again, I'm, I'm a believer in religious liberty writ large. Uh, I believe in freedom of conscience. And to support the right of my atheist brothers and sisters not to believe that's that's their that's their god given that's their god given right whether they realize it or uh, or not. Um, you know, I, again, I having lived in Africa a couple of times, I had um, visited uh, many clinics and hospitals, seen uh, terrible poverty. But I must say, um, I'm not sure that I've seen anything worse than what I saw in places like uh, Burma in central Rakhine State, the the plight of the Rohingya. Um, some have heard me say this before, but what devastated me, and this is my second trip overseas, was to meet a young Rohingya father. Uh, all of his children had been born in that camp. And he said that uh, he could not leave that camp without written permission, which he had never gotten. And he said, you know, we have schools and no teachers. We have a mosque and no imam. And he said, the only food I've got is what you give me. And he said, what do I tell my son? Right? No answer to that. No. So that's, um, that's part of it. But also, um, you know, when you look at the 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 plight of the Uyghur, um, you know, which is a sometimes we we find ourselves at a loss in superlatives, right? Because it it is such an extraordinary thing. I think it is 
I think Americans are sometimes a little naive. We don't want to believe that that kind of evil is there. We get, you know, jaded a bit by television and movies. No, this is real. And these poor people, if we don't stand up for them in everything that we do and we say, shame on us, then we're betraying those values that I think is, that are at the heart of, of, um, of this country. So, um, yeah, it's extraordinarily important uh, work to me. And I think it also shows the world that, um, you know, we're sincere when we talk about our values and our willingness to work with others from different backgrounds in order to uh, make those values come alive. So again, I'm, I'm very proud of that work. And um, you know, I, I will say it was when we first announced the initiative, we, we did so at a press conference at the State Department. And I'll, I won't forget, a, 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 a nice lady who's a, a reporter came up to me and she said, how do you defend giving money to uh, religious communities. And I said, I'm a development guy. I've been a development guy for a long time. So I'm putting in water systems. I'm helping to repair schools. I'm helping to provide seeds that are drought resistant. That's what we're supposed to do. And if in a particular community it is a priest, pastor, imam, rabbi that's leading that community, fine with me. And the person responded by saying, okay, and walked away, and that was the end of it. So everything that we did was absolutely sound development. It is what we do at USAID. So again, um, you know, we, we, I don't think we did anything that, it shouldn't have been earth-shattering, right? This is the way that we should do things all the time. Okay, one question. Uh, sum up, please, and please identify yourself. If you can wait for the mic. Samah Norquist, uh, Ambassador Green. Uh, I know I speak uh, on behalf of many of our my former colleagues. Thank you for your leadership in empowering us and uh, doing all the good work. Uh, you touched on America's generosity to the world, where a lot of people don't know how much America is generous and how much money we give to help people around the world. You touched on... Uh, northern Iraq, and I don't mean to just pick on Northern Iraq, but Northern Iraq was a case study for all of us on many number of issues. I want to ask you about branding. I want to ask you about uh, how uh, you were very, very uh, passionate about branding, uh, letting the world know that we are there, America has been there and generous. I want you to share your thoughts with us on why it's important and all the stuff that you've done in order to make sure that the world knows that America's there. So Samaz heard uh, too many of my sermons as I walked into the office and railed about uh, poor branding and, and lack of branding. It goes back to my days as, uh, as an ambassador. So I was ambassador in Tanzania after I served in Congress. I was asked by the diplomatic community to speak at a World AIDS Day gathering at a, um, at a football st soccer stadium in Dar es Salaam. And so I went there and I looked around and they had the logos of all of the groups that were involved one way or the other. And I leant over, leaned over to my CDC director and I said, you know, I don't know what these acronyms are. 
and I think I created most of them when I was in Congress. And if I don't know what they are, sure as heck, a, a young Tanzanian for whom English is at best his second or third language, they don't know. And this is a betrayal of the American taxpayer. Um, we need to demonstrate our compassion and action. And to me, it's not about fancy logos. It's just from the American people. When I was ambassador, <coughs> by the way, I would never allow plaques to be put up anywhere that thanked me. I didn't allow any American official to do one exception. Uh, President Bush came in once, and yeah, we allowed a plaque for President Bush. But I didn't do that because it's not about me. It wasn't about aid. It was about American taxpayers. And I think that's what we need to do over and over again. We're really bad at it. And the number of times, and it, it, it's legal, and it's bureaucratic. And you will see all of the requirements, some of them are written into, into law, so that um, when I was ambassador, we had uh, an NBA and a WNBA star come over to do basketball diplomacy. So all great, right? and, uh, all good, all fine. And then uh, USAID was asked to create uh, some T-shirts, so we as giveaways to the kids, and they were covered with like 20 different logos that we were legally required to put on there of all the different little agencies and acronyms. And I had uh, I had one of the Tanzanian officials call me and say, "Really? This is what you're going to do?" And I just felt terrible. So to me, uh, I don't care what part of the U.S. government. Uh, I don't care what administration, just from the American people. Uh, this is not my money. It's not the government's money. It's taxpayers' money who are willing to do, in a compassionate way, things uh, for the good, compassionate towards people, supporting bureaucracies and other things, not so much. So that's, that's very much uh, what I believe in. Uh, Mike McCall, Congressman McCall, uh, uh, was very, very helpful in pushing um, flexibility for me and did so in legislation, actually with formal legislation, but also was able to get report language. Very, very grateful. Uh, and in fact, this is bipartisan. We, we would get tremendous support both sides of the aisle because nobody would believe me uh, if I told them um, the silly things that we were, we were stuck with. Uh, so, uh, as you can tell, Pat, uh, Samal's right now, I'm passionate about branding. And, and we have a section on branding in our special right. report. I, I don't know if somebody is keeping track of any online questions, but um, we, uh, we have time for a couple more. Uh, Javier? Ambassador, I'd like to say, Mark, um, first of all, I just want to say that I'm very proud to have worked for you. Um, second, I was with you in Bangladesh, and I went several times there and uh, to see the Rohingya, so uh, thanks for bringing that up. I also want to thank everyone for uh, uh, commenting on the uh, issue of life. Life is extraordinarily important. My question is, um, sometimes it's an uncomfortable question, but uh, how can we do more with less in terms of uh, resources, because we do have to be uh, fiscally responsible for the resources uh, that we have. And my own sense is we can do more with less, but you're the boss and I'd like to hear from you. Thank you. 
um, your thoughts are, are correct. So one of the biggest changes in the world today that we have not taken full advantage of. So when I was an ambassador, 2007, 2008, first part of 2009, there was, in all honesty, very little U.S. private business investment in a place like Tanzania. There were some safari operations and a few hotels. There really weren't big investments. All of that's changed. U.S. commerce touches every part of the globe. There are, there are um, capital flows and business relationships. So there is no reason now not to partner closely with the private sector to get most of these things done, to tap into Coca-Cola's supply chains, to work with um, Cargill and others on innovative seeds from the private sector. All they need from the U.S. government in some cases are some guarantees and some technical assistance. So it's a very different world than when I started off. That's the biggest change. We can make money go a lot further by partnering with the private sector to, you know, to liberate their genius and their power of innovation. Um, there are extraordinary things. So when I started off, when I was a teacher, there was one wind-up telephone in the village on a box, and you would go and you'd wind it up, and you'd say, operator, give me Nairobi, and you'd put it down, and you'd sit out under a mango tree for half an hour, call would come through. A dozen years later, Henry Hyde sent me to Kenya as an election observer. I go to the same village, and I'm trying to track down one of my former students. wasn't allowed to tell him I was coming for security reasons, and I walked up to a kid, and I said, do you know Neva? He said, yes. And I said, can you go get him? And, of course, he texted, pulled out his mobile phone and text messaged him. And then half dozen years or, or so later, I'm an ambassador, and my driver's got so darn many SIM cards. He's putting in and out and doing transactions. In Western Africa, in Ghana, they have uh, a setup where these are old numbers, 70,000 farmers receive a text message each and every day that gives them a 48-hour weather forecast and advises them on when to plant and when to water and when to harvest. That was American technology brought to a difficult traditional problem. That's genius, right? I mean, that's, that's how we solve these problems, and it doesn't cost much money. And so I think we've got to constantly spur and push bureaucracies and say, look, um, you know, there are things that only government can do. But everything else, it's, I mean, those people, those farmers that we are trying to reach to compassionately, they deserve the most effective, most efficient way to get stuff there. So the default position should be government only where necessary. It should always be, what's the innovation? What's out there? And then finally, and we did a little bit talking about the new partnerships initiative, I can't stress enough the importance of partnering with private business, private nonprofits, and sitting down in, in true collaboration in crafting initiatives together. The default position is that you create a massive program and offering, and then you take it to a business at the last moment and say, can you do this? And they will almost always say, 
well, you know, there's actually a seed of a decent idea. But, I mean, if you only spoken to us, we could have helped you do this far more. We have to change the dynamic of how we collaborate and how we design. America's great advantage is private enterprise. That's our, that's our advantage. That's what everybody else wants, and they don't have, and we've got. And so that needs to be part of all the uh, foreign policy. Taylor, do we have a question? I think time for one more question from the virtual audience. Uh, Nicole Robinson asks, what are your thoughts about integrating elements of the Millennium Challenge cooperation model into foreign aid distribution, particularly the rigorous selection process, country scorecards, selection indicators, and other examples? So um, part of that we did at USCID and implemented some of it. It's amazing how long these things take. Um, with our roadmaps in the way that we did the journey to self-reliance. So we tried to take some of that. In fact, we actually took the numbers guru from MCC and brought him to USAID for a while. Um, but there's another piece to it that sometimes gets lost that I think we need to do more of, and that's compact-based, conditions-based foreign assistance. Uh, you know, I think we need to be able to go to countries and say, look, we want to help. Let's sign this deal. We need you to do certain things. No corruption. We need transparency. You know, we need those, those things. You do it, we're in. It needs to be on time. And sign a compact because you're treating people like independent adult leaders. And you are creating when, so I oversaw the largest Millennium Challenge compact in the world. It was in Tanzania, nearly $800 million. It required Tanzania to do some really hard things for them. Because they had come from a socialist tradition. This is big stuff, reforms. And I remember President Kikwete going to his cabinet saying, we signed this. My name's on the line. This is a, a, an obligation that we have of honor that we have signed with President Bush. And I think that's a big deal. It's also a point of pride. When the compact is done successfully, it, it is a proof. It is evidence in these countries of what can be. So, uh, you know, there are some people don't like conditional assistance. I'm not one of them. Uh, I think that we should do compacts. Not, not, ever, not our humanitarian. We do that without regard. We do that on the basis of need. But when it comes to development work, again, it's voluntary. It's not an entitlement. Um, we don't always get it right, but we understand some of the principles that, that countries need to pursue in order to, at least if they want to follow our model, and I think that should be part of it. Well, thank you, and thank you so much for all the questions. I know we probably take another hour of your time uh, continuing to talk about these very important subjects, but we have run out of time. I do want to thank you, Ambassador Green, for coming. Thank you. And, uh, I'll also thank our contributing authors of the special report, uh, USAID, The Journey to Self-Reliance. And everyone, please have a good day.